Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 16? So if, if you're new or we have new folks watching online, welcome. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the book of Revelation here at Calvary on Wednesday night. We are currently in chapter 16 of our study. And as we have said numerous times, this chapter contains the seven bold judgments, which are the last and most cataclysmic of all the previous judgments we have studied. These judgments will be poured out in rapid-fire succession on the wicked kingdom of the Antichrist. And this will lead directly to the return of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will return, the Battle of Armageddon will take place, and then the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth will become a reality. Now, so far in our study of chapter 16, we have covered the first six bull judgments. They are as follows. The first bull brings malignant sores to the earth dwellers, verses 1 and 2. The second bull is poured out on the oceans and saltwater seas. They are turned to blood, verses, verse 3. The third bowl is poured out on the fresh waters of the earth, and they are turned to blood, verses 4 through 7. The fourth bowl is poured out on the sun, and it scorches people upon the earth, verses 8 and 9. The fifth bowl brings darkness and severe pain, verses 10 and 11. And the sixth bowl we see is poured out on the Euphrates. It dries up allowing the kings from the east to come uh, in and uh, do their thing. You can read about that in verses 12 to 16. So that brings us to the seventh bowl, um, which is subtitled The Greatest Earthquake Ever. Now, we'll get to that eventually, but let me just start off by reading the first part of verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, into the air. Now, as we have said, the seven bowl judgments are the last in a trilogy of seven judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls. All these are poured out upon the earth, but primarily upon the earth dwellers, a classification of people that have made this earth their home and only their home, they have no desire for the spiritual things of the God of the Bible. And in fact, uh, at one point become followers of the Antichrist, taking his mark and worshiping his name. The language seems to indicate, as we have studied these uh, judgments, that uh, the righteous will be exempted. That God will, will protect his people from these judgments because God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. So however he's going to do that... He is, it seems from the language as we've been studying this language, that these judgments are poured out upon uh, the Antichrist followers, uh, upon those that belong to his kingdom, and God's people will be exempt. Now, guys, this seventh bowl is the last judgment of the final set of seven judgments. In other words, at this point, we are right at the end of the Great Tribulation period, right at the point just prior to Jesus returning. The seventh bowl of wrath is poured out upon the air, or in other words, upon the atmosphere of the earth. Ray Stedman, who is a very gifted Bible commentator, he's with the Lord now, but he wrote about this, and I quote, This judgment, particularly coming as it does on the heels of the Battle of Armageddon, probably describes the effect of nuclear warfare which would release vast clouds of poisonous radiation upon the earth. So it may well be that the final bowl of God's judgment is tipped by the finger of man himself, a finger that is even at this moment poised over the nuclear button. In our high-speed, high-tech, ballistic age, mankind is never more than a few minutes away from potential doom." End quote. Now, guys, if Stedman is right, and I thought that was interesting, uh, his take on that, all right, 
that this is going to be some kind of a nuclear event that is poured out upon the air, the atmosphere. And my ears perked up when I, well, my ears, my, my eyes, I guess, perked up when I, when I read this because uh, if, if he's right, and I think he is, I think he's onto something, it could be the fulfillment of something that God prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, I believe that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 will happen before the millennial kingdom is established and not at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ as some think. Why do they think the battle in Ezekiel 38 and 9 will happen at the end of the millennial kingdom? They think that because of Revelation 20, verse 8. Now, verse 7 says, After the thousand years was finished, Satan is unleashed from his prison. Remember, he is cast into the Abusa before the millennial kingdom is established by Jesus when he comes back, right? He's in this, this prison for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 7, he is released. Verse 8 tells us, And he goes out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, battle the, to, to gather them together to battle. I'll just leave it there. When we get to Revelation 20, I'm going to show you why Ezekiel 38 and 39 are not the same battle as the one mentioned in Revelation 20, verse 8. But for right now, let me say that many good, good evangelical scholars, including Hal Lindsey, who's a prophecy uh, scholar, expert, but many good evangelical scholars believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 happen before the Antichrist rises to power, but definitely before the tribulation period begins. Now, it could happen right after or right before the rapture. We're not quite sure the timing of the rapture with regard to this. But good evangelical scholars believe that the events of, of Ezekiel 38 and 39 are going to happen before the seven-year tribulation period begins. Now, it officially begins. When will that be? Well, we've already studied this. The, the last seven years, the seven-year tribulation period officially begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. That We read uh, about that in Daniel 9, verse 27. So that officially begins the last seven years that we call the tribulation period. But what I want to key in on tonight is uh, how that, again, many good scholars believe that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 9 take place before the coming of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, uh, I used to believe that too. And I'm not saying I've abandoned that position altogether. I'm kind of torn, all right? Um, but tonight I want to show you that uh, the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, listen, could happen at the end of the Great Tribulation, just before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. In fact, I'll go as far as to propose that it could be because of this very battle that Jesus does return to the earth. Yes, to establish his kingdom, but also to save Israel from the invading armies mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, primarily chapter 38. We know that according to the prophet Zechariah, Israel is going to be facing extinction from the armies of the Antichrist. I mean, it's going to look like they have no chance of winning at all, that all hope for the nation's future is lost. And in desperation, they cry out to God to save them. They are right now, for the most part, a secular nation. For the most part. There are some believers in, 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 in Israel, but for the most part, they are a secular nation. So this petition will mark the beginning of a national revival, a national awakening. But they will, at this point of total desperation, I mean, Israel believes themselves to be a scrappy, gutsy nation. They forgot it was God who has been fighting for them all along. But like America, we've gotten a little big for our britches too. It was the Lord who gave us victory over the greatest 
power in the world at that time, Great Britain. I mean, if you study the Revolutionary War, we looked like we were lost several different times, like all hope was gone. Like we were uh, going to be defeated and that was going to be it, but God used weather and God brought different circumstances to pass, and all of a sudden we had the upper hand and God gave us the victory. That should have been enough to sustain us for our entire national history, that this, this uh, nation is a nation under God, established by God, even as Israel was a nation under God, established by him so many centuries earlier. But Israel forgot uh, that God was with them. And so today they are a secular nation for the most part. But listen to me. At one point in absolute desperation, I'm talking that there is no chance they're going to, I mean, they're scrappy and they're tough. They're not that tough. You can't take a nation of 15 million people and go up against an army that is a worldwide army coming against the nation of Israel, maybe consisting of 100 million or more. I mean, the nations that surround Israel, the Muslim nations, are 80 million strong, people-wise. And yet, God has kept them at bay for all these years since Israel was declared itself a nation again, right? But at one point, their backs are going to be so up against the wall, and defeat will look so certain, that in desperation they are broken of their pride, of their self-reliance, and they are going to cry out to God to send Messiah to save them. Now listen to me. Not Messiah generically, whoever he might be, please send him. We're talking about Messiah Jesus specifically. Well, how do they even know about Jesus? Remember the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists? Many Jews got saved through, will no doubt get saved through their ministry. But many others would be on the fence. You know, not sure, you know, kind of, you know, as, as people do, you know. Well, maybe you're right. I'm going to wait and see. You know, and, and, and But now, there's no more wait and see. Our very lives here, I mean, there's, there's no getting around it. If Jesus doesn't come back as our Messiah, now they're acknowledging him as their Messiah, no doubt. If he doesn't come back and save us, we're done. We're done, right? This would fit with the words of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, guys, is a powerful, powerful messianic psalm. You can read the whole thing on your own. But when we talk about the nation crying out to Messiah Jesus to come and save them from their enemies... This would fit exactly with what we read about in Psalm 118, picking it up at verse 25, where the psalmist said, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Deliver us. You can almost hear the um, passion in these words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, guys, typically... These verses are associated with Jesus' first coming, right? In fact, these were the very words that the disciples were shouting on the Mount of Olives as Jesus was riding on that donkey up to the top of the Mount of Olives and then down the other side, eventually making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, right? And the disciples were shouting from this very messianic psalm. When people read this psalm, they almost always associate it primarily or exclusively, I should say, with Jesus' first coming. However, these very verses were quoted by Jesus. Now, he's already here. They were quoted by Jesus in Matthew 23. And guys, the context was his second coming. Listen to what he says, Matthew 23 Verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going away. The nation's not sure where he's going. We know where he was going to go to the cross. Three days later, rise from the dead. Forty days later, ascend back to his father. 
The nation had rejected him. And so he says to them, blessed, he said, blessed is he, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as we just said a moment ago, the seventh bold judgment is the final judgment of God poured out on the kingdom of the devil and his false Christ known as the Antichrist. Back in Revelation 16, again, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. Who do you think said that? Well, he said it once before from the cross. It's none other, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ speaking from the temple in heaven. Now, I want you to understand this. After we see the Lord say this and the rest of the chapter presented, chapter 16, then, of course, we have chapters 17 and 18, right, in the book of Revelation. But, guys, those chapters are a parenthesis to fill us in on some of the things that have already gone on, okay? That means that the next chronological event that follows the statement of Jesus from heaven, it is done, including the rest of chapter 16. The next event in chronological order is his second coming, recorded in chapter 19. Now, I want to read some of the verses in Revelation 16 again and put them next to some of the scriptures found in Ezekiel 38 and 39 to show you why I believe they are all talking about the same events. The events just prior to Jesus' return and the establishing of his millennial kingdom. So Revelation 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Verse 14, For they are spirits of demons, performing signs or miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of Almighty God. Now, in case you're a little bit uh, not sure what battle that is, keep reading verse 16. And they gathered to them together, these kings of the world, leaders of the world, armies and all. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone um, about, excuse me, each hailstone, uh, verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each, each hailstone about um, the mountains. I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I have, uh, uh, okay, I must have, uh, my program messed me up a little bit. But again, verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, about, about 100 pounds, Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Once again, the next event, chronologically speaking, will be the second coming of Christ. And then, of course, uh, the establishing of his thousand-year millennial kingdom. Now, guys, if you compare Revelation 16 with the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, I want to do this. Because, as we just said, the events of Revelation 16, and I'm thinking primarily of that last, uh, last bowl, uh, we are at that point in the narrative in, in Revelation 16 at the very end of the tribulation period. And remember now what happens at the very end of the tribulation period. Jesus comes back, and he, you know, 
fights the Battle of Armageddon, right? Then establishes his kingdom. I want to kind of put these verses kind of back to back and show you why I think that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 could be talking about the very same uh, events that Revelation 16 talks about leading up to Jesus' return. So turn to Ezekiel 38. Part of this will not only be to nail down the chronology uh, of events, but I don't know, uh, going through some of these prophecies as we will tonight maybe give you a better understanding of what uh, the Bible says um, prophetically on this subject, these events. But in Ezekiel 38, and again, I want you to compare it in your mind's eye with Revelation 16. But in Ezekiel 38, starting with verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Now, guys, uh, Gog is the leader of Magog. What is Magog? Well, we're going to find out in just a second. But I want you to know that Gog is the leader of Magog. So, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. That's the where we get the word Russia from the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. This would be the leader of Russia. And if these events happen as soon as we think they might, it could be talking about Putin. Although he could be killed tomorrow or tonight so and replaced. But if things continue the way they are right now, Vladimir Putin would be Gog, ruling over the land of Magog. Verse 4, and I will turn you around. So I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and will lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all having, all handling swords. Swords. Now, guys, don't let the language throw you. Uh, we we know that this prophecy given uh, 2,500 years ago, speaking of events that are not have not yet happened, but are coming probably soon. We know that they're not going to use horses and bows and arrows and things like that, right? But what is God supposed to do? Put tanks and Apache helicopters in here? Nobody would know what he was talking about for about 2,000 or so, 2,500 years. No, this is metaphoric language, metaphorical language for warfare. Okay, you plug in modern weaponry and go for it, okay? Um, in fact, it's interesting because I did a little study of this years ago. Um, the word for uh, or for uh, arrows just means projectiles. It could be a missile, uh, a bow, a launcher was the idea in the Hebrew. So even back then, some of the language, it communicates to us modern weaponry, right? But uh, this tremendous army led by the leader of Russia, God's going to draw them into this conflict with Israel. Why would God do that? I'm going to put hooks in your jaws, almost like they don't really want to come, but God drags them into this conflict. Why would God do that? To stand up and fight for his people and destroy this incredibly powerful invading army to show that he is real, he is the God of Israel, and he has promised them he would always be with them and fight for them. This is God glorifying himself, right? Along with the leader of Russia, verse 5, you have Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you, O leader of Russia. Guys, Ezekiel 38, verses 1 to 6, not only prophesied 2,500 years ago, uh, this invasion that would take place, but it also prophesied the very nations that would come together in this invasion to attack Israel. 
Of course, we've mentioned Russia. Persia, well, that's Iran. That's modern Iran. Ethiopia, Libya. Libya is in North Africa, west of Egypt. And Ethiopia, well, that's in uh, Africa, south of Egypt. Gomer, see Gomer there? That is Eastern Germany and the Slavic countries. When I did my study in Genesis and the, and the uh, descendant of Gomer came up, and this is just a reference to his, his tribe, his family, okay, uh, many years down the road. But in Genesis, we saw uh, when Gomer was born and all, and I did a little study on some of the names. And uh, the ancient historians Herodotus, Strabo, and Plutarch tell us that Gomer's descendants settled initially, they migrated after this, but they settled initially to the north of the Black Sea, giving their name to the ancient district known today as modern-day Crimea. Well, that's pretty interesting. Tagarma, that's Turkey and Armenia. Guys, these are predominantly Muslim countries, and they sure don't need much of an excuse to invade Israel and try to kill the Jews, right? That's what they live for, all right? But again, the Bible predicts that this battle is going to take place, listen, in the last days, in the last days. Look at Ezekiel 38, verses 8 and 9. After many days, now this would be after chapter 37 of Ezekiel. and chapter 37, we saw the, the valley of dry bones, right? And how that... These bones represented the whole house of Israel, uh, a nation that was dead, out of its land for many years, right? Uh, dry bones, a long time, right? And how that God was going to bring the nation together as the bones began to rattle and come together and form skeletons and then muscles and sinew or flesh, or a, a muscle, a sinew, and then flesh formed on these skeletons and they stood upright as a great army, but there was no breath in them. Breath is the Hebrew word ruach. And it could mean breath, it could mean wind, it could mean spirit, as in Holy Spirit. When Israel was reconstituted and became a nation, again, May 14, 1948, they stood, but there was no breath in them. What do I mean? They're not a spiritual nation. Not to this day. They're basically a secular people. That's going to change. That's going to change. But I just want you to understand that, right? So after many days, after Israel has, is back in the land, is a nation again, you will be visited in the latter years. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword. Uh, and uh, he's talking to, uh, to Russia still, this invading army. And, uh, and you will come into the land of those bought, brought back from the sword and gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel. So Israel is regathered in this conglomerate of, uh, of enemy nations are going to come against them, not for a while, in the latter last days, but after many days. Um, and they will be gather, go against Israel, people gathered um, um, you know, from, from all corners of the earth is what happened. When Israel became a nation again, God began to move in the hearts of the people, and Jews began to leave, live, leave their homes from all over the different places of the world, and, and come to Israel. God was leading them. God was burdening them to come back to their native homeland, okay? Uh, but they were going to be visited in the latter years. Uh, God speaking to Russia and these armies, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely, the Jewish people. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops and many people, peoples with you. Guys, as I said earlier, the timing of this invasion has been debated by prophecy experts for many years, right? Does it take place, Ezekiel 38 and 9, does it take place before the tribulation period begins, before the last seven years of human history as we know it begins? Does it take place at the end of the tribulation, just prior to Jesus' return? Or, as we said, does this invasion into Israel by her enemies take place at the end of the millennial kingdom, as Revelation 20, verse 8, seems like it might indicate is the case. Now, guys, before we go any further, let me just say this, okay? I mean, let's just deal with the elephant in the room, all right, when we read this. In Ezekiel 38, the Holy Spirit lists the nations 
that come against Israel and Russia, Iran, Northern Africa, and a confederation of Muslim nations primarily. The big question is, where is Israel's closest ally when this happens? I'm talking about America. It could be, because we're not mentioned. You study end times prophecy, China's mentioned, kings from the east. Russia's mentioned. Iran is mentioned. I mean, Egypt is mentioned. Where's America? If these events are coming as quickly as we think they are, we are the superpower of the world. What happened to us that we're not mentioned? Well, it could be, I'll give you a few possible scenarios. It could be that we are absent because we're simply too weak and depleted militarily and financially due to wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and now possibly Ukraine to help in any meaningful way. We're just too depleted, too weak, weakened to help in any meaningful way to stop these invading forces into Israel. And therefore, we can offer, we can only offer flaccid and tepid denunciations against her enemies. Look at Ezekiel 38, verse 13. It talks about, um, well, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, which many believe is a reference to Great Britain. And listen, and all their young lions. Who are the young lions that came out of Great Britain? Could be America. And listen what they say. Um, Great Britain, America, possibly, will say to you, this invading army, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty and carry away silver and gold to take away livestock and goods and take great plunder? You shouldn't do that. That's not nice. Wow, sounds like our State Department. I mean, is this all we can muster? Because we are a paper tiger at this point. I mean, you know, our glory days are gone. We have so depleted ourselves with foreign wars, nation building, that now, and our enemies, they're not stupid. China's loving this conflict with Ukraine and America's involved and Russia, of course. Because they would love us to, to deplete with these skirmishes, you know. This might not be. This might be more than a, a skirmish. Eventually, it might blow into a real war. But China would love Russia and America to go at it, wipe themselves out, and here we are standing in the sidelines, step right in to be the world superpower, with no competition. I mean, is it, could that be it? We're just so depleted by this time. Militarily, financially, we, all we can do is shake a finger and say, no, no, naughty, not nice. Or it's possible that by this point in our history, like the Roman Empire, which, by the way, historians have pointed out that uh, the Roman Empire was not conquered from without, it was it corrupted from within. And it's possible that, that by this point in our history, like the Roman Empire, our nation could have, could have collapsed in on itself because of the rampant, you know, immorality, corruption, social chaos, and overall demonic evil that has so permeated and poisoned our nation. Look, every day we look at the news, we see a nation that is disintegrating, a nation that is becoming so weak it's ready to collapse in on itself. Could that be what happens and why we're not a a player anymore on the world scene could be or it could be given our current administration in America we simply won't honor our treaty with Israel to help her in this battle because our leaders in those days and it could be the same leaders today because this could happen very quickly it could be that our leaders in those days because they hate Israel and consider her an evil occupier of Palestinian land, and therefore see her defeat as a good thing, we won't come to her aid. We'll just, we just won't honor our treaty with Israel. Now, if you think that's, where'd you get that from? Uh, do a little reading. Our State Department, 
has been anti-Israel for many, many years. We have people in government on the left, and they've got all the levers of power. It's no, no, it's no secret that they hate Israel. Well, they're being led by the devil. They're on the devil's side. The devil hates Israel. Anybody who is really of that mindset where the devil is controlling them, that leftist mindset, of course they're going to hate Israel. And folks on the left in power in our country, they hate Israel. They think Israel is, a, is a, uh, an occupier of Palestinian land. And they would love to see Israel wiped out because they're rooting for the Palestinians. Guys, whether one of these reasons or something else, America seems strangely absent from the final scenarios that will usher in the return of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom on the earth. In other words, Israel, listen to me now, and I'll quote to you a, a verse before we end, how that at one point the entire world is against Israel. The entire world. doesn't say except America or the young lions. No. At one point, even America turns its back on Israel. And guys, that will be the final nail in our coffin. I will bless those who bless you, God said. I will curse those who curse you. And one of the reasons we have, we have stayed a nation... Um, up until this point, in part, two reasons. God has been merciful to America. We have two things going for us, I think, that have saved us up until this point from God just wiping us out completely. First of all, we are a friend of Israel. We are a friend of the nation of Israel, and God has honored that. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, we said to Abraham. And secondly, we were, I don't know if we still are, I kind of doubt it, we have sent more missionaries out to every corner of the earth spreading the gospel than any other nation in history. That has changed. I'm sure it's changed. What I'm saying here, though, is at this point, Israel is going to have to go it alone against these very powerful enemies, including Russia, Iran, and these others. Guys, and I think most of you already know this, we talk about Israel going it alone. Israel already has in place what it calls the Samson option. The Samson option. What is the Samson option? It is a um, something they have developed, uh, a, a course of action, whereby they have said, if we are attacked by any of our enemies with any kind of non-conventional weaponry, biological, radiological, chemical, Israel says, says we can't sustain that kind of an attack, and we will invoke the Samson option, which means we will nuke them. Now, it's the worst-kept secret in the world that Israel is a, super, is a nuclear power. They have been for, oh, I'm thinking 70 years now, roughly, now, they've never really um, advertised that, but everybody knows that Israel is a nuclear power. And basically what Israel is saying is, look, if we think we're going down, we are not going to go down without a fight. We will nuke our enemies. Here's the thing. Right now, Israel is a secular nation. That's going to change. But when these enemy nations attack, and I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 are, well, that's what we're studying, right? Um, initially, Israel is going to think it's going it alone. Now, the problem with that is, of course, they are not going to be going it alone. Again, God has promised that he will be fighting for Israel, always has been fighting for them. In fact, he told us in Ezekiel that he will fight on behalf of his people when these invading armies enter the land, and he's going to wipe out five-sixths of the Russian army. 
God will wipe out five-sixths of the Russian army. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean he won't use Israel's nukes to accomplish this massacre, right? God uses sometimes total supernatural events. Sometimes he uses natural events in a supernatural way. Weather, uh, I was reading in my devotions in Ezekiel how God was talking about bringing judgment upon various uh, uh, nations that came against Israel were their enemies. At one point, God says, and I will use the wind. I will use the beasts of the field. I will use pestilence. I will, you know, at one point, he talks about the hornets. Do you realize, I mean, have you done a little Google search on, 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 on hornets? And I'm thinking in particular, the uh, giant Asian hornets. These things are about this long. And when they sting you, they've got kind of like an acid in their venom. And if you survive it, and you'd have to get stung by enough of them to die, but uh, I saw pictures of people that have been stung numerous times, and it leaves a, a dimple in your skin like you would have been shot with a bullet. You've ever seen somebody who's been shot and then they're healed, they have that little dimple in their skin? I mean, can you imagine God unleashing about a million of these things on uh, an enemy army? Uh, I think that would be pretty effective. I mean, God has got ways of fighting that we can't even imagine. However, sometimes he will use um, other means in a supernatural way. And I think he could possibly use Israel's nukes to, to fulfill that prophecy and wipe out this invading army. Why do I say that? All right, turn to Zechariah 14. I want you to notice this. Now, in these verses, verses 12 to 15, Zechariah 14, God is talking about what he calls a plague. He's going to bring upon the invading armies that come against Israel and Jerusalem. Remember, a plague doesn't have to be a disease thing. It could just simply be an act of judgment of some kind. God calls it a plague. It's a kind of a catastrophe scenario, okay? But listen to the language that God uses here, okay? Verse 12, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. This is amazing. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand, while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Verse 13, it shall come to pass that, that in it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be upon them. Well, you can imagine. Jump down to verse 15. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps, so this plague will be. Somebody has said this sounds like the effects of a neutron bomb. A neutron bomb is designed to kill people but not destroy buildings. The high radiation output where, where people, and of course the idea behind the animals, anybody in the area, if a, if a, a neutron bomb is dropped, yes, the people are going to be dissolved while they, while they stand. So are the animals. That's just the idea. I mean, everything in the area that is of flesh is going to be destroyed. And I say, well, are you sure? I mean... Are you telling me this is a nuclear thing that the prophet is talking about? You tell me what you think it is. And before you jump too quickly to a conclusion, turn to Ezekiel 39. And I want to read verses 11 to 16. Because it goes along with what we just read. This is, in Zechariah 14, what kills this invading army. And then in Ezekiel 39 is the aftermath of the war. Verse 11, It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because they will bury Gog and his multitude, his armies. Therefore they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them, these bodies, in this war, this conflict, in order to cleanse the land. 
Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, uh, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it in, on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly, regularly employed. These are professionals, paid professionals, with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse the land. At the, end of the at the end of seven months, they will make a search. So after the battle, they'll wait seven months, then take seven months to have search parties go through the land, locate all the bodies that of, the, of the soldiers that died in this battle, and we believe it's nuclear. What do they do? Don't touch the bodies. If you're a, 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 a you know, citizen of Israel, and you're, you know, a, a part of this search party, or you're just happening to walk through the land and you find one of these bodies that was killed in this battle, don't touch it. Put a marker there and let the professionals come and deal with the bones. That covers through verse 16. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like it comes right out of the military's playbook on how, how to deal with after the after effects of a nuclear conflict. I could be wrong. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. If it's true, guys, that this battle comes at the end of the tribulation period, Ezekiel 38 9. If it's true that this battle comes at the end of the tribulation period, notice what the prophet Ezekiel goes on to prophesy right after. Ezekiel 39, verse 17. And as for you, son of man, a title for Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, speak of every sort of bird, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, talking to the animals, come gather together from all sides of my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat the flesh and drink the blood, that you should eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. What's God saying? He's calling for the birds and the beasts of the, of the land to come and feed on the dead bodies of these people that died in this conflict. They're going to be gorged, these birds and animals, with the flesh of those that God destroyed. And that's what God is saying. Come to the feast, the sacrificial meal I have set for you, speaking to his creation, the animals, the birds. Feed on the bodies of princes and of mighty men of war that God has wiped out. Now, guys, compare the prophecy right here in Ezekiel 39, 17 to 20, with a description in Revelation 19 of the final events that take place on the earth right before Jesus establishes his kingdom upon his return. Revelation 19, verse 11. We'll get to it uh, eventually, but I want to just give you a preview. Now I, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Any ideas about who this might be? Of course it's Jesus, returning to the earth. And the armies of heaven, that would be include us, the church, um, the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God 
that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the beast of the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And listen, all the birds were filled with their flesh. Guys, this is the battle of Armageddon that was talked about in Revelation 16, verse 16. And then, as you turn the page, that's Revelation 19, chapter 20, we see the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom, which says to me, the events that we just read about happened right before Jesus establishes his kingdom. You say, okay, well, that's obvious from Revelation. What about Ezekiel 38 and 39? As you turn the page on chapter 39, you come into Ezekiel 40, which talks about the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So it seems to me that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 9 happened right before and then during Jesus' return. And then after chapter 39, Chapter 40 of Ezekiel, the kingdom age is established. You can read all this on your own, right? But just to show you what it says in Revelation 19, about after the battle of Armageddon, chapter 19 ends, verse uh, chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, Satan, and the, the, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished, until the thousand-year millennial kingdom uh, comes to an end. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. You say, why in the world would God do that? We'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 20. Let me just close by reading you some other prophecies in Ezekiel 38, comparing them with Revelation 16, which we know again, Revelation 16 occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Turn back to Ezekiel 38. We'll read these and we'll close. So Ezekiel 38, verse 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, you will you not know it? And they're not expecting an attack. He's not stupid. He's waiting for them to get their guard down. Then you will come from your place out of the far north. I heard somebody say to me one time uh, when I said, you know, uh, uh, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Rosh is the name we get Russia from. Oh, how do you know that? These are tribal names that go back from the very beginning of when these areas of the world were settled. You go back to the tribal name, okay? You don't go to the most current name. It, it changes uh, over time. Different places, they change the name of their, of their countries and so on, right? I said to him, it says right here that this Gog, leader of Magog, I believe the leader of Russia, is going to come from the what? The out of the, uh, uh, then you will come from your place out of the far north. If you go home tonight and look on a map of the Middle East, find Jerusalem, go due north, you'll eventually hit Moscow. I mean, it's almost a straight shot. Moscow, is a, uh, Russia, is about the farthest to the north that any superpower or well-known power exists. Okay? So... People say, well, I don't know who this, this, this invading army is. Who is this Gog of Magog? It's Russia. And the leader of Magog right now is Putin. But God says, you will come from out of your place, out of the far north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, great, uh, a great company and, mighty, and a mighty army. And verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. And it will be in the latter days. This isn't something that was, prophet, was prophesied 2,500 years ago. 
didn't happen, you know, 2,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago. It's talking about the last days, right? The days we believe we are in. It will be in the last latter days that I will bring you against my land, Russia and uh, Gog, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you. That's why God does it, to glorify his name. When I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? You know, people say, you Christians have been talking about these prophetic things for years. You know, nothing has happened. Well, God says, I've been talking about this for a long, long time. But the day is coming when it's going to be fulfilled. Verse 18, and it will come to pass at, the, at that same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath. Could that be a nuclear fire that God unleashes? I don't know. Possibly. In the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Uh, Revelation 16 verse 18. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. I'm just referencing both now, right? We know that Revelation 16 is talking about right before Jesus returns. At the very end of the tribulation period, could Ezekiel 38 and 39 be talking about these same events? I believe they are. Okay, and I'm going to cross-reference, okay? So God in Ezekiel 38, verse 19, talks about a great earthquake that, yes, is going to affect Israel, but not, not only Israel, because in Revelation 16, verse 18, there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great, great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Back to Ezekiel 38, verse 20. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Listen, the mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Reference that with, uh, with Revelation 16, verse 20. Then every island fled away, and every mountain was, and the mountains were not found. Ezekiel 38, verse 21, And I will call for a, swore, a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Revelation 16, verse 21 and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, and so on. I'll just finish, I'll end it with that, okay? You can also read Zechariah chapter 11, starting with verse 17, which clearly is talking about the Antichrist. And then I'll just read these to you. I won't, we don't have time to get into them. But uh, I, want, I said I wanted to plug in some of the prophecies from Zechariah, if we had more time, we'd look at these verses uh, uh, ourselves. I'll leave it to you. But I wanted to plug in some of the prophecies from Zechariah, which I believe are talking about the same events spoken of in Revelation 16 and Ezekiel 38 and 9, uh, the final events leading up to the return of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. So uh, in Zechariah 11, verse 17, the Antichrist is mentioned. Then we have the Antichrist and his armies come against Jerusalem. That's Zechariah 12, verses 1 to 9. And you can compare that with Ezekiel 38. Then you have the Jewish people cry out to God to deliver them from this invasion. We see this from the Psalms, uh, Psalm 118. Again, verses 25 and 6. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, please, I pray, save now. Talking about Jesus coming back and delivering them from the Antichrist. And Jesus said, Blessed, you will see me no more. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Israel finally acknowledges that Jesus is their Messiah, and in humility and brokenness, they, they petition him. We can't do it, Lord. If you don't save us, we are done. Then Jesus returns.
And then we see a great awakening occurs in Israel with national mourning and repentance. Zechariah 12, verses 10 to 14. Jesus returns and destroys the Antichrist and his armies. Zechariah chapter 14, and of course, Revelation 19, as we have seen. Then Jesus separates believing Jews from apostate Jews. That's interesting. That's in Zechariah 13. More about this next week. That's an interesting topic. And then finally, the kingdom is established, Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 21. So, you know, what we tried to do tonight was just tie in some of these um, end times prophecies. You read these things and, you know, you're like, I don't even know what, what fits where and what is this about. Well, as we studied Revelation 16, I wanted to bring in some of these other Old Testament passages because I think it's important that we understand the scenario and the chronology and so on. So uh, I will leave it to you to do further studies on your own. Next week, we will continue in Revelation 16 and finish it, no doubt. And then, of course, 17 is very, very interesting. You don't want to miss that. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts to lead us into all truth. And, Lord, we just pray you continue to bless and lead us in this study of your word, that, Lord, we might understand, that we might be able to uh, speak the truth about these things to people that don't know you yet, uh, that they might get saved before the rapture, hopefully. And so, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies uh, in your word for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.